Planetary Exploration with Robohub, the podcast for news and views on robotics. Hello and welcome to the Robohub podcast. Today we will hear about technologies to enable planetary exploration and in situ resource utilization. The letter, also abbreviated to ISRU, is essentially the use of local materials found on other astronomical objects like the Moon, Mars or asteroids to support astronauts and space exploration. It is the practice of collecting and processing materials from such objects rather than having to purely rely on supplies from Earth. To date, this has only really been achieved through the use of solar panels for energy production, but in the future... In-situ resource utilisation could be used for construction, propellants and life support, as well as energy, making planetary exploration more affordable and feasible. Honeybee Robotics, a small spacecraft tech and robotics company based in New York, is working on technology to make ISRU and the search for extinct extraterrestrial life possible. Our interviewer Lily spoke to Chris Sackney, the Vice President of Exploration Technologies, about the design and operation of current flight projects and about why drilling technology is absolutely key to these missions. Hi, welcome to RoboHub's podcast. Would you mind introducing yourself? Hi, uh, good morning. Uh, my name is Chris Zachney. I'm a VP of Exploration Technology at Honeybee Robotics. Uh, just across from JPL in uh, Altadena. And Honeybee actually has multiple locations, correct? Yeah, we we have uh, currently three locations. Um, uh, originally, when Honeybee Robotics was uh, created, it started back in Manhattan in the, on the uh, Lower East Side, um, right next to the Little Italy. And then we migrated onto the west side, uh, just a few blocks away from uh, Empire State Building, um, close to the Hudson River. And then in 2010, I decided to move uh, to the west coast to be close to our clients, uh, NASA J- J- Jet Propulsion Lab. And so, so I created this this office with my colleague uh, Gail Paulson uh, back in 2010, and. And slowly, this office has grown from two people to we are close to 100 right now. Um, At the same time, um, you know, another colleague of mine, he realized I was gone from from New York office. So he says, well, I'm going to leave too. And uh, uh, his name was Eric Mom. He decided to go to Longmont, uh, to Denver office. And uh, he started this office also around late 2010. And he has also grown this office from a few people all the way to over 100 uh, right now. In fact, uh, Denver is, is our headquarters. Um, and our New York office, uh, where they remained, uh, moved to Brooklyn Navy Yard. And this office is around 20 people. And each of those three offices, they focus on different things. Um, Brooklyn is focused mostly on, on orbit servicing. Denver is developing... Uh, spacecraft mechanisms, um, solar array drives, slip rings, uh, everything that's required for the spacecraft to to function properly. And uh, the office that I run here in uh, in uh, just outside Pasadena 
in a, we just moved from Pasadena to Altadena, uh, is, uh, is focused on two things. Um, the first one is um, touch life, and another one is mind the sky. So under uh, touch life is we developing technology that's required to find uh, to find or extend or, or extinct uh, extraterrestrial life, and uh, under the mind mind the sky um, theme we are developing technologies. Uh, for uh, in-situ resource utilization, for essentially mining extraterrestrial bodies. And we've got many flight projects and uh, R&D projects uh, for each of those two. Cool. Could you talk a little bit more about um, what technology is involved for each of those projects, as much as you can tell us, and how, yeah. and how closely or how easy it is to work with JPL? Yeah, so, so absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, uh, we just, uh, working with JPL was just fantastic. This is world-class, uh, you know, S space robotic uh, institute, the, the best in the world. And uh, we, we did learn a lot uh, interacting with them and, and working on, on several missions. Uh, the last one that, um, the, the last one that uh, we were involved in is a Mars, so-called Mars 2020. Uh, so it's a Perseverance rover. Um, the, uh, this is the rover that, uh, is, a, is a very first, uh, mission in a, a Mars sample return, uh, mm -hmm. program. So, uh, Mars 2020 rover will, will land, uh, will launch in July, will get to Mars early next year, and it will drive around and they capture rock samples. And then these rock, rock samples will be brought back to Earth. Uh, in a subsequent missions for, for analysis. So 2020, Mars 2020 is a very first step in the Mars sample return campaign. Um, so we delivered our hardware to the, um, to this mission, um, which included witness plate assemblies. It's, it's essentially the, one of the cleanest, uh, one of the cleanest, uh, material that has ever flown in, uh, in space. Uh, it's used for contamination knowledge to capture any molecular or, uh, a, a, or par particulate contaminants that rover would be shedding on the way to Mars and on the surface of Mars. Even though uh, these rovers and, and payloads are assembled in, uh, in the clean rooms, uh, there is still a lot of uh, molecular contaminants and particular contaminants. Uh, the level of cleanliness that is required to bring samples back from Mars is absolutely unbelievable. And that in order to understand uh, contamination level, we had to develop uh, these uh, uh, assemblies of ultra pure gold, aluminum, and titanium to capture the contaminants. So this thing is, uh, is, is gonna launch in July and it's been absolutely, you know, uh, fantastic working on a mission. Um, but we have many other ones, uh, in a pipeline right now that keep us, uh, busy. Uh, even during the weekends, it's, uh, it just, these are exciting missions. The first one is, uh, Dragonfly. It's a new Frontiers class mission, uh, run out of APL, that's Applied Physics Lab, uh, in Maryland. Um, 
a, together with NASA Goddard uh, and a few other centers in, in Honeybee. Uh, this is uh, the Dragonfly is a, is essentially a drone, um, a, a sort of much bigger than than what we you know what you would buy from Amazon, uh, and it's powered by radioisotope thermal generator. Um, the drone would traverse close to 100 miles in its uh, two-year duration, uh, baseline duration on the surface of Titan. Um, so Honeybee is providing entire sampling system. Uh, the drone has two skids on both sides. It sort of looks like a helicopter, but it's actually octacopter. It's got eight uh, blades. Uh, we have two drilling systems on uh, two skids with a, a pneumatic sample delivery. So we're using uh, sort of vacuum cleaner technology to suck up a material uh, generated by the drill and pass it onto the uh, two uh, highly sophisticated instruments, a gas chromatograph mass spectrometer and laser absorption mass spectrometer. Those two instruments uh, are provided by NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. Um, Titan is... Um, uh, it's, it's just fascinating body. Uh, it has a methane rain. It's got uh, a, a tar sort of sense and uh, uh, a very thick atmosphere, uh, 4.4 uh, times denser than atmospheric atmosphere here on Earth. It's extremely cold, around uh, 94 Kelvin. Um, if the the atmospheric pressure is 1.5 over threshold atmospheric pressure. And because gravity is seven times lower, it's extremely easy to fly. Uh, actually, it's 20 times easier to fly on a, on Titan than it is here on Earth. At the same time, using a, a vacuum cleaner technology is so much easier because this air is so much denser. In fact, you know, Titan is one of the best places to use uh, vacuum cleaners. Um, and so, so whatever we're building is, is going to be uh, you know, extraterrestrial vacuum cleaner, the first one <laughs> in its kind. Um, so it's a su super fun project. Uh, and when it actually launches in 26, uh, we're going to have eight years of waiting till it gets to Titan in 2034. And uh, from 34 to 36, it's a baseline mission. We're we actually going to be operating our drilling system and and a vacuum cleaner on, a, on the surface of Titan. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, so this is one of them, and it falls under uh, touch, a touch life theme uh, because it's an it's astrobiology mission. Um, so I, have, I have a quick question about that. When mm -hmm. it's in operation, is Honeybee also involved in, in that aspect of it, or does, does it kind of the parts are created, everything's integrated, and then it gets handed off to mission control elsewhere. Yeah, so in this particular case, we're actually going to be operating our, our hardware. Um, we are building electronics to run it, we're building our own software to run it, and we'll have entire uh, group of people uh, that will be uh, sending commands to Titan uh, to, to actually operate our hardware. The way it's going to run is, once we land uh, on, the, on the surface, uh, we're going to be given a go-ahead from a, from a mission control uh, saying, Honeybee, you, uh, you are go to acquire the sample, drill down and acquire a sample and send the sample to the, 
to the instruments. At that point, uh, we're going to look at the surface. We're going to figure out what sort of uh, different uh, parameters uh, to, to use for drilling and, and uh, for suctioning. Uh, we'll send the commands over to, to Titan, and then we'll get the pictures back, uh, hopefully with, uh, with, our, with our sample sitting inside a cup, ready to be handed over to the, to the instruments. So we, we're going to be actually running this thing, and it's, that's why it makes it so much more fun. And so under the, so this is for uh, Touch the Live Astrobiology Mission. Under um, uh, Mind the Sky, uh, we are actually finishing off, uh, we're getting ready for what it's called critical design, critical design review. This is a final review before you're going to start cutting metal and building a flight hardware. Uh, so we are building a, a drill called Trident, and that drill will be placed on a rover called Viper. Um, Viper is scheduled to launch in 2023 to the moon and uh, get down to the uh, so-called uh, PSRs, permanently shadow regions. These are the regions on the surface of the moon uh, towards the South Pole and North Pole uh, that have not seen the sun. And these are the cold traps uh, that's where ice accumulates and uh, and stays. It's it's very very stable. Uh, PSRs uh, have temperature of around 40 Kelvin, so it's one of the coldest places in the in the solar system. So the goal of the Viper rover is to drive around, uh, look for the hydrogen signature with a neutron spectrometer, and when it finds hydrogen, uh, which is a proxy for water. Uh, at that point, it will stop. Uh, we'll uh, deploy the drill, uh, get down to uh, meter depth, and bring the cuttings to the surface to be analyzed by two other instruments. One is called Nervous. Uh, it's a near-infrared spectrometer. Another one is called M-Solo, and this is mass spectrometer. And idea is that this rover is going to drive around for almost 100 days. Uh, it's got um, a sort of survival capabilities to, to stay in the dark for 96 hours, so without uh, any, any solar illumination. And uh, the, our goal is to uh, drill approximately 50, uh, 50 holes during the 100-day uh, traverse. So that's, uh, that's like a different mission from, uh, from Dragonfly. Dragonfly is going to be much slower but Viper, uh, because it's Mamun and it's so close by, and it's only 100 days, it's going to be 24-7, non-stop operation. Um, it's um, it's going to be, again, you know, a, a, lot, of, uh, a lot of fun. Uh, and we're going to be operating our own drill as well. Uh, in a, we're going to be in a mission control together with our NASA colleagues. Um, and um, uh, it's a, it's a first sort of surface mission since uh, uh, since Apollo. Mm -hmm. uh, NASA hasn't put anything on the surface of the moon since uh, 1972. Oh, well, apart from uh, a cross mission which crashed uh, into the moon on purpose, but otherwise we haven't really put anything on the surface. So for these two missions that you've mentioned, which both are kind of drilling 
in nature but have very different technical challenges are you able to reuse a lot of the technology or is it kind of back to the drawing board for each mission in uh, in some of these cases uh, we using uh, to some extent what we uh, learned here on earth but we had to apply to different uh, conditions titan is different from uh, from the moon and titan and moon are different from the earth so things uh, work slightly different Challenges, obviously, are very different as well. Uh, some of them, you know, some of the things that are similar is uh, if you if you build something and you cannot uh, drill a hole uh, here on Earth, uh, there is no way you would be able to drill a hole on a moon on Titan. Things get significantly more difficult. Um, so, uh, so we're learning uh, from technologies that we that worked here on Earth. But we adapting them to, uh, to to these different conditions uh, that Titan and the uh, Moon pose. So you bring up technologies that do work here on Earth, and I know Honeybee kind of has a hand in a lot of different industries, or at least a few other industries from space and defense. Yeah, we uh, that's right. Yeah, we we do have industry. We do have other projects uh, for. For mining and oil and gas. In fact, uh, in my previous life, I worked for a couple of years in uh, underground uh, gold, diamond, and, and coal mines in South Africa, all the way down to 12,000 feet down. So uh, this was pretty good experience. Uh, you know, learning how to get rocks uh, from from you know 12,000 feet down, and what tools are being used to actually cut through extremely hard rocks. And then I did my master's in, uh, in petroleum drilling uh, at, at UC Berkeley. So uh, this was, again, great experience to figure out uh, what, what sort of different drill bits exist, uh, what cutting materials exist, how the fundamentals of drilling uh, uh, you know, uh, look like. And then for my PhD, I did actually extraterrestrial drilling. Uh, so everything that we're doing here at Honeybee uh, is, is essentially what I learned for the past in my entire life, um, and a lot of a lot of this experience uh, uh, has been extremely extremely useful, especially uh, field experience, underground experience, and also we've been going um, to a lot of different uh, analog sites around the world: Antarctica, Arctic, Greenland, Atacama. All of these experiences help us. Uh, how to develop something for for extraterrestrial planets. And Honeybee is still involved in in some terrestrial drilling projects. Yes, we uh, we have uh, some work for oil and gas industry. Uh, it's not necessarily related to actual drilling, but more like sensing, uh, uh, trying to uh, develop technologies for. Uh, processing, robotic processing of, of cuttings and integrating different sensor uh, instruments. It's sort of what we do on uh, extraterrestrial bodies, right? Uh, we, go, we go out and, and we drill and we capture some material, then, uh, then we have to send this material to the instruments for analysis. And in many cases, what oil and gas and mining are doing is exactly the same. Uh, they have to cut the rock, uh, you know, crush it and analyze it to see how much gold or 
how much other minerals are present before they commit to mining. So um, uh, it's uh, you know it's the same stuff we do here on Earth, but on other bodies we have to do it robotically, and that's why uh, mining and oil and gas companies they come to us uh, and they tell us, well, if you know how to do it on other planetary bodies, tell us how we would do it here on Earth. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why that's why you know uh, our involvement in, in some of these is, is also um, useful, but. In general, we, we've seen um, most of the 90% of the work we do is for, for space. And um, we've seen a significant increase in uh, uh, requirements to go below the surface. Um, if, you, if you think about it, from a, you know, if, if you look at the, how, how the space exploration uh, evolves, uh, the easiest thing to do is take a telescope and uh, you know, look out into the sky from your from your backyard, right? Uh, that's the easiest. Uh, a telescope costs you know, a few hundred bucks, and and you can try to do something with that. Um, the problem is what you see is is very limited. Uh, so at that point, what you can do is build a bigger telescope and stick it on a on the top of a mountain like Mauna Kea. Um, you don't have to go to space. You can just observe uh, planets and planetary bodies from a uh, from top of the mountain, but there is only so much you can do, right? So at that point, uh, if you have money, well, you can send a, a flyby. So you send a spacecraft with a couple of cameras and spectrometers, and uh, you fly by up under bodies, you take pictures, and, and maybe you sniff some uh, atmospheric gases coming from a, from a planetary body. But that's, you know, there is, again, uh, only gives you so much data. At that point, if your technology increases and you have more money, you can actually build an orbiter that's going to fly around uh, the same planetary body for, for months or years. And um, Mars Odyssey or Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter are just examples of that. Uh, but again, uh, there is a limit what you can do from an orbit. Well, at that point, you send the lander down to the surface. Uh, lander scratches the surface and sniffs whatever scoop can pick up, uh, and it's a single data point. And we try to uh, tell the story about the planetary body using a single data point. And that's really hard to do. So at that point, we can send a rover, and the rover is exploration in, in two dimensions. It drives around uh, kilometers or tens of kilometers and gives you this additional information. It's no longer a single data point. It's uh, uh, additional data points that tell the history of planetary body. But at some point, all of this uh, comes to the end. And uh, the questions that we are asking uh, get so difficult and that the only way to answer them is essentially go below the surface. It's it's essentially what we do here on Earth. If we we want to know the history of, of our Earth, we have to go below the ground, right? Uh, we go to Antarctica, for example, we capture uh, ice cores going down to four kilometers, and, and we know what happened uh, to our planet going million uh, years back. Uh, we do the same with, with rocks. We look at the rocks, and uh, we know what happened 50 or 100 million years ago. Um, that's exactly what we do on other planetary bodies. We go below the surface. And as we go below the surface, we go back in time. Um, so the, all the easy questions have been done. And now 
the tough questions require us to go below the ground. Since you have a pretty good sense of the time scale of a Mars sample return type mission, what do mm-hmm. you think is the time between now and when we actually get people on the ground? Right. Uh, good question. Um, so, uh, uh, as you know, the two, uh, two essentially uh, paths to, to get humans to Mars. The first one is uh, NASA path, and uh, another one is a path that SpaceX is taking. And uh, uh, SpaceX is, is working, you know, very closely, closely with NASA in, de- in developing these human missions. Um, but thanks to these collaborations between uh, government and the private industry, I've, I feel like the, uh, the, the timescales we, we're talking about is probably 10 to 20 years. Um, if, if it was just, you know, NASA or if it was just private industry, those timescales would have been significantly longer. But uh, through these uh, public-private uh, partnerships, uh, the, the cost of a mission goes down and the timescales are, are significantly shorter. So I would, I would put it at, you know, 10 to 20 years. Nice. Well, I think that may be all the time we have left, but uh, do you have any um, advice for people currently pursuing robotics or research in other fields that are interested in kind of space and, and how to, how to get started? Yes, absolutely. Um, so my, my advice is uh, follow your heart, uh, follow your interest. Uh, different industries, they go, you know, through, you know, ebb and flow uh, all the time. But as long as you're passionate about what you do, um, uh, you will be fine. Because uh, at the end of the day, it's really important to be uh, to be excited and interested in what you do. You're gonna spend most of your life at work, and uh, you might as well do do the stuff that that you know gives you pleasure that that you're interested in. And to me, the the space exploration is just absolutely fascinating frontier. At the end of the day, uh, we are discovering. Uh, we are discovering new worlds, and we are discovering how our solar system uh, works. Uh, so this, you know, this unknowns about the, about the space is what's driving me and uh, what makes me interested about space exploration. I wouldn't do anything. I wouldn't do anything else. Mm-hmm. It's just a lot of fun. Well, thank you so much. Sure. Thanks very much. Pleasure, Pleasure talking to you. You too. Take care, Lillian. Bye-bye. And that's the end of today's episode. If you'd like a little more, check out our past episodes at robohop.org forward slash podcast, where you can also learn more about our Patreon campaign. As a podcast that is entirely run by an international team of volunteers, we really rely on support from our listeners to keep going. Just a few dollars a month can really help us bring you the latest robotics and tech information from some of the leading minds in their fields. These are difficult times, and obviously our podcast will always remain free to access for everyone.
But if you can spare a few dollars a month, please consider becoming a sponsor and find out more at robohub.org forward slash podcast. We'll be back in two weeks time. Until then, goodbye. Planetary Exploration with Robohub, the podcast for news and views on robotics.